submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 91767, uh, Republic National Bank of Miami versus United States. Mr. Bailey, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this case concerns federal appellate jurisdiction. The issue is, can the United States, by executing on a favorable currency forfeiture judgment, divest a federal appellate court of appellate jurisdiction to decide the merits of a timely filed appeal? The 11th Circuit below held that the government had this power, which holding is contrary to the majority of the Circuit Courts of Appeals which have addressed this very issue. It is the government's position in this case that the government can bring a civil forfeiture lawsuit, win the case at trial, and then prevent an appellate court from deciding the merits of that appeal by transferring the funds in dispute from the territorial jurisdiction of the trial court. I suppose would its position also be that if pending the uh, pending the uh, decision in the district court, the property was sold and the uh, proceeds were transferred to some other place, the district court would lose jurisdiction too, I suppose. I believe that would follow from the government's position. That's certainly not the position that we advocate before this court. The late Judge Vance, in his dissent in the 11th Circuit's one Lear jet case, which dissent is now the basis for the rule in the majority of the circuits, referred to the majority opinion which adopted the government's arguments being made before this court as follows, and I quote, It offends fundamental principles of fairness, it represents a departure for common sense, and it is analytically flawed. We believe Judge Vance's comments are correct. It is the bank's position in this case that the government should not have the power to defeat a federal court's appellate jurisdiction by its unilateral act of levying on a forfeiture judgment. We believe that when the government or any party brings a lawsuit in federal court, that party, as the plaintiff, submits itself to the court's impersonum jurisdiction, regardless of the nature of the underlying action. The bank further submits that the nature of the trial court proceeding, whether you call that proceeding in rem, quasi in rem, or in personam, should have no bearing on the issue of federal appellate jurisdiction. Well, the, this would be your view even in a classical admiralty uh, action, Mr. Bailey, uh, where, where everybody agrees it is a, cla- a prototypical in rem action. Nonetheless, the government there would submit itself to the personal jurisdiction of the court. It's not only my position, Your Honor, but it's been adopted by this Court in several of the cases cited in our brief in a pure admiralty case, the uh, Thekla case, the British transport case, and several prize cases where the government has intervened in admiralty in rem cases. 
and then objected to cross-claims being filed against it. And this court has held that when the United States intervenes, it takes the position of a private suitor for all purposes for which justice may be done. Well, is that the same thing, though, as an, as an admiralty action, say, initiated by the government? Our position would be it would be the same, Your Honor, that the government, by initiating an action, as well as any plaintiff that initiates an action, submits itself to the court's impersonum jurisdiction. Notwithstanding uh, sovereign immunity. That is correct, Your Honor. Sovereign immunity, we believe, would apply to suits against the government, not to suits by the government. In your hypothetical, Mr. Chief Justice, you asked about the government initiating a lawsuit. So that our position Mr. is... Mr. Biley, what about cases like the Brig Ann, where the court has stated that the release of the Reese uh, ends jurisdiction? Justice O'Connor, first, we don't believe that ancient admiralty cases should be relevant to an issue of federal appellate jurisdiction in a currency forfeiture suit. But even under those old admiralty cases, our reading of the cases, I recognize the government has a contrary interpretation, our reading of the traditional old admiralty cases, which we don't believe to be relevant, is that jurisdiction vests and upon the initial seizure and that the continuous seizure or the continuous court control of the race, even in the old admiralty cases, is only required in two circumstances, none of which apply here. Well, for example, if a third party absconds with the Reese, what happens then? In a traditional admiralty case, if the only way that the court can fashion meaningful relief to the litigants is to have custody of the Reese, and it's essential that that Reese be before the court to, to make a meaningful award, then you have this useless judgment exception, as we referred to it in the rules, and the court will not entertain a suit where it can't fashion any meaningful relief. But that's not the case here. The government has the money. The government has had possession of the money from the time this lawsuit started. Mr. Bailey, we don't you, believe you, you would say that even in the old, old admiralty cases, I think you would say this, uh, that uh, uh, if the case had already been decided by the district court and was on appeal, as it is here, and at that point somebody had absconded with the ship, the appeal would have proceeded, even in old admiralty cases. Wouldn't you say that? Or do we have a case where that was the situation? Our position would be if the absence of the ship in the ancient admiralty cases would make any judgment rendered by the appellate court or on remand the trial court meaningless, then the court, under concepts of mootness or uh, case and controversy, could decline jurisdiction and dismiss the case. But again, that's not the situation in this case when the government has had the money from the inception of the suit and even under their position has the money today in the Treasury. Certainly meaningful relief can be fashioned in this case. So you're saying the, the old admiralty cases are no different from what you would, you would say should apply here? Well, I'm saying the old admiralty cases, Justice Scalia, should not have any relevance to currency cases. To the extent they do, I think the principles of the yeah, Well, I'm not sure I agree with it, but they shouldn't have any relevance. Why shouldn't they have any relevance? Doesn't Congress, isn't our normal rule that, that Congress enacts against the background of the common law and we interpret their statutes against that background? Congress, in this case, said that the procedure of forfeiture cases shall, as far as practicable, conform to admiralty. We interpret that as a position that procedurally you follow admiralty practice in forfeiture cases, but we do not read that 
as a declaration by Congress that every rule of substantive law that's ever been developed in admiralty cases ipso facto apply in forfeiture cases, nor do I know of any court that is so held. I suppose if the money in this case uh, wasn't in the bank or in uh, some place, but it was in a bag uh, and somebody stole it, I suppose then that would be uh, the Court of Appeals could uh, dismiss the case. Does Your Honor's hypothetical mean stole it during the course of the trial court proceeding or after the judgment? After the judgment. Your Honor, that again gets to the issue, of, as the government suggests, about the necessity for posting a bond. That is a financial risk any litigant takes. That shouldn't be a jurisdictional issue. For example, if you wish to preserve the race, put up a bond to protect and ensure the continuance of the, of, of the presence. And you have the right to do that if you wish to put up a bond. I'll point, though, that that's a financial risk. It shouldn't be converted into a jurisdictional risk, as the government would seek to do it in this case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Under your view, uh, the language in the Rio Grande uh, was really quite unnecessary, in which the court indicated that jurisdiction remained if the Rees was removed by some improper action or by accident or by fraud. That, that was just quite unnecessary under your view of the case. No, Your Honor. I think that case held that initially that uh, initial seizure vested jurisdiction, and that certainly an accidental or an improper removal of the race would not divest jurisdiction. Well, why would the court have, have qualified its language then to say that accidental or improper removal? It would just say that any, any transfer of the race, any uh, relinquishment of, or, or any uh, disappearance of the race suffices. Your Honor. If the Reese were an immutable rule of jurisdiction, if a court lacked power to proceed to adjudicate a case without that Reese before it, then I would submit that any removal of the race, for any reason, accidental, improper, act of God or otherwise, should divest the court of jurisdiction. I think the exception, in essence, highlights the original rule, as we interpret the admiralty cases, which is that jurisdiction is complete on initial seizure, unless the removal would make the court's judgment meaningless and worthless, because there's, n- there's no basis to afford the party. Well, but I, I'm still not quite sure what your explanation is for the accidental, fraudulent, or improper removal language. It seems to me those are quite unnecessary qualifications. And under your view, the Rio Grande Court should have said, and any subsequent removal by the Rees is insufficient to destroy jurisdiction. With the, except, the two exceptions that I read out of the Admiralty case, just right. the useless judgment and the voluntary abandonment situation, which came up in one of the other old Admiralty cases. All right. Do you re- <clears throat> didn't the government make some agreement with the bank uh, early on? Yes, Justice White, they did. Uh, that they would not re- that they could foreclose, but they wouldn't. Re- they would hold the. Proceed subject to the bank's land? Justice White, the agreement was that uh, the case started out as a forfeiture against the luxury home. Yes. During the course of the proceedings, the government got a sales offer. And on joint motion, with my client's consent, asked the trial court to sell the property and take the proceeds from the property and put the, those proceeds in the court registry as and a substitute. Did they do property. that? Yes, they did, Your Honor. Well, uh, how do they ever get the uh, proceeds out of the court registry? 
After the judgment became final, they asked the marshal to wire transfer the funds or by bookkeeping entries to, uh, to the Treasury. So you, so, so, uh, you think uh, whatever they – you don't think there was an agreement then with the bank that they would hold, hold the proceeds? Well, we think the 11th Circuit misinterpreted the stipulation. Uh, that is not a focal point of our argument here because we, we well, you don't, don't rely on any agreement whatsoever. That's correct. We don't think okay. this court took uh, jurisdiction, certiary jurisdiction. I would think, I would think, I would think you would, if if it was sort of a breach of faith by the government, you would certainly be relying on it. The stipulation indicated that our rights would be without prejudice by wire transferring the funds. We think we have been treasures, but we are not relying on that as the basis for the for the relief that we seek before this court. Are you going to deal in your oral argument, Mr. Bailey, with the government's appropriations clause argument? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. In fact, uh, I'll address that now. The government takes the position that now the funds somehow are in the Treasury, and that being in the Treasury, the appropriations clause precludes the relief that we seek. I think their argument fails for at least two reasons. One, that the issue of whether these funds are government funds is my position is only when this case is over, when the appeal is over. We say it's our funds. Government says it's their funds. That's the issue for a court on the merits to decide. But the, 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 the money that you're, you're talking about, basically, was, was remitted to the Treasury, was it not? Well, we don't concede that, Your Honor. Money we believe to be a fungible asset. We believe that all that happens when money moves from one account to the other are bookkeeping entries. I think either the First or the Third Circuit, or perhaps both, expressed it best when they said to predicate jurisdiction on what government pocket holds the money is a seemingly an artful way to, to determine federal well, but it would seem, jurisdiction. It would seem uh, arguable that, that Congress drew a distinction, that uh, there are different funds that uh, government uh, deposits are, are housed in, and once, once it goes into the Treasury, it's subject to this appropriations clause limitation that it wouldn't be subject to if it simply remained in, in, in a different account. Mr. Chief Justice, if the government's position on that point is correct, the government, in, in, in the classic impersonum case, take a case, uh, a student loan hypothetical, where the government sues, collects, the defendant chooses not to supersede, and the government collects money from the defendant while the appeal's pending, and sends the money to the Treasury which they'd have a right to do where you have an unsuperseded judgment. Is the government going to take the position in that case that the Appropriations Clause bars relief because in an impersonum case, the loser of a student loan claim did not supersede? Well, well I suppose you have to look at the statute, but um, it, it seems to me your argument that the uh, that money is fungible, that it's an intangible, cuts against your appropriation arguments. You, were the, you began by saying... Oh, this is not, I assume you meant, this is not public money. Uh, title is contested to this. But the, but the minute you say that it's simply an accounting entity that is fungible, then it seems to me that that weakens your argument under the appropriation clause. Your Honor, I don't think so. I think that what happens when money is in a, in a, in a bank account, you have a debtor-credit relationship with the bank and the depositor. You have a situation here where the Treasury owes money to the government, which has not yet been resolved until this appeal is resolved on the merits. As the First or the Third Circuit, or perhaps both have said, the government is everywhere, so the, the obligation is owed everywhere. But more importantly, and I, I didn't quite finish my answer to the Appropriations Clause question posed by uh, the Chief Justice, to the extent we need statutory authority 
to get these funds. We have two sets of statutes. We have 28 U.S. Code 2465, which says quite plainly that forfeited property shall be returned to a successful claimant. And we have 28 U.S. Code 524C1D, which is the Department of Justice Asset Forfeiture Funds, which says one purpose for which forfeited funds should be used is to be paid to claimants. Well, so what, what, you, what do you do with 1301D uh, the, that says a law may be construed to make an appropriation only if the law specifically states that an appropriation is made? Your Honor, we think both of those statutes set forth appropriations out of forfeited funds to be paid to claimants to those funds, such as the bank in this case. There's nothing in those statutes that say that the statutes don't apply if the money is in the Treasury. It says that forfeited funds shall be returned to the successful claimant. But it, you, and you, you say that is the language of specific appropriation? I believe it is, Your Honor. Specific appropriation for use of forfeited funds. If, forfeit, if Congress says forfeited funds shall be paid to a successful claimant, the fact that the government has levied and put the funds in the Treasury doesn't change that those funds can, be, can serve that purpose. I suppose if this hadn't been treated as a jurisdictional matter uh, and the Court of Appeals had decided the case against the government, it wouldn't make any difference whether the funds were then in the Treasury or not. The government would have to pay a judgment. That's certainly our position, Your Honor. Uh, so it's, uh, it really doesn't make much Even if they had transferred the money, they might have to pay a judgment. We don't believe Just it. like the government has to pay judgments a lot of times. That is our position. When they lose a, um, when they lose a tax case sometimes, they have to give it. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bailey, can I ask you kind of a, maybe a, well, just a question. Do you understand the government and the Court of Appeals to be taking the position the case is moot? They, in their brief, they take the position that there are, there are mootness concerns. They don't quite come out and say that the case is moot, but they suggest mootness concerns. We don't think the case is moot. Um, but it seems to me that either if it were moot, we ought to vacate the judgment below. It would be the normal disposition. Then you get your money back. That's our normal disposition with moot cases, and I'm not quite clear what your understanding is or what their understanding is of the mootness. I'm not particularly certain as to what the government means, why the case is moot. Uh, if their position is that the appropriations clause makes it moot, I believe I answered that contention a moment. Well, I thought the, the taking the, their theory was taking the, the Reese out of the, the territorial jurisdiction of the district rendered the case non-justiciable or moot, which would be true if the plaintiff were trying to, still trying to get the money out of the Reese, but that's, this is the opposite here. That is correct. And if you Plain. vacate it, you seems to me, I'm, I'm just, well, I, I suppose I should ask government counsel this question. The government's suggestion in this case that the solution to this jurisdictional problem is the posting of a bond or the obtention of a stay, in all respect to the government, we believe simply makes no sense. The sole purpose of a supersedious bond, historically and otherwise, is to assure a successful trial litigant that its judgment will be paid if the execution on that judgment is delayed while an appeal goes forward. There's never any risk of non-payment to the government in a civil forfeiture case because the government has possession of the property. They had it at the inception of the suit, and they had it after the suit was over. A bond would serve no useful purpose whatsoever. 
nor is a stay, which is a discretionary ruling by a trial court, a very sensible prerequisite to federal appellate jurisdiction, because federal appellate jurisdiction should not depend upon trial court's discretionary ruling. Well, doesn't the bond, doesn't the supersedious bond ordinarily provide not just to secure the principal, but interest as well, for damages, for delay, whatever you want to call it? Traditionally, the amount of a supersedious bond would cover future interest on the principal sum of money, um, and, and perhaps appellate costs. That is correct, Mr. Chief Justice. So just holding the property, as the government does, would not allow it necessarily to recover those elements? The, the, there's nothing that prohibited the government from putting those funds in an interest-bearing account. We would have no objection uh, to the government levying on those funds and investing it in any way they saw fit. We, our position is that that shouldn't preclude us from taking an appeal to a federal uh, appellate court. Government wished to invest those funds and earn interest, they, they're perfectly free to do so. And you don't really care whether they move it to the Treasury or not, uh, uh, as long as you get your appeal. That is correct. And, have, and uh, if you win the case, uh, you would think the government would, would pay you. We would think so. <laughs> the position that we assert that the Plaintiff, any plaintiff, when it brings a case in court, submits itself to the impersonum jurisdiction of the court, we believe applies here. Very early on, this court, in two old cases, Adams versus Sanger and Nations versus Johnson, held, and I don't think I can state it uh, any better, that no rule can be a sound one which will deprive a party of his right to have his case submitted to an appellate court. No rule. Adam Sanger, Nations, Johnson, hold that when the plaintiff seeks relief, that that party is subject to the court's jurisdiction for all purposes for which justice required. No, guarantees you the right to appeal, do you? No, Justice White. The, the right to appeal is not a constitutional right, but I certainly believe it to be a very fundamental right of a federal litigant. Well, you've got it by statute, I guess. That is correct. Congress, in prescribing the appellate jurisdiction of federal courts in 28 U.S. Code 1291, states that federal courts of appeal have appellate jurisdiction over the trial court final judgments. What we believe the government is doing here is attempting, by its unilateral act of levying on a judgment, to interfere with that congressional appellate jurisdiction mandate, which we believe to be improper. Uh, but you, you certainly don't have a right to appeal where... Uh some event occurs that, that, uh, that simply uh, causes there no longer to be a case or controversy, right? Uh, that is it. correct, Justice Scalia, but that is not the case here. Well, but, but why wouldn't the same, why wouldn't the same uh, answer be given if indeed uh, the problem here is that uh, uh, the lower court can no longer enforce its judgment? Why? why? We believe, we believe, Your Honor, that the lower court can indeed, if this case were decided on the merits in favor of my bank, um, decide this case on the merits and enter Enter what? A judgment against the United States? No, just direct the government under restitution principles and the two statutes cited before to give us those forfeited, those portions of the forfeited funds to which my bank as a mortgagee is entitled. What, what, what are the two statutes that you're relying on for that? I'm relying on 28 U.S. Code 2465, which holds that a, upon a successful judgment in favor of a claimant, forfeited funds shall be returned to the claimant, 
and 28 U.S. Code 524 C1D. That's, of course, not an appropriation, that provision. We believe it is an appropriation with respect to forfeited funds. It directs the allocation of forfeited funds to a successful claimant. What the government has possession of in this case is forfeited funds. We're seeking to get the portion back that we claim we're entitled to. What was the issue between you and the government as to your right to, the, to, uh, to uh, have your uh, lien recognized? Under civil forfeiture law, Justice White, the burden of proof is on a claimant to property, such as a mortgagee, to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that that party had no actual knowledge of the underlying transaction. You were claiming to be an innocent owner. That's correct. We were claiming innocent ownership, and that was the dispute with the government. And the district court found against you. The district court found against us. And you wanted to litigate that in the Court of Appeal. We took that issue up. We felt there were clearly erroneous factual findings of the trial court, and that the trial court applied the wrong legal standard. Let's assume that the two statutes you rely on are not appropriations. Do you lose? I don't believe so, Justice. Why not? Those statutes direct how forfeited funds shall be paid. I don't think the government can avoid the impact of that case by bringing a suit to acquire forfeited funds and put it into the Treasury. So you're saying, in effect, that uh, the statute assumed, or those statutes, on my assumption, uh, those statutes presuppose that the government will not have put the money in the Treasury, and therefore the deposit in the Treasury would be a mistake, uh, and, and therefore... Uh, legally, they would not be subject to the Appropriations Clause. Is that what you're saying? I believe those statutes would apply whether the funds remained in, in district court in the marshal's account or were levied upon, as they were done in this case, and, and wire transferred or by bookkeeping entries put into the Treasury account. Well, if they're in the Treasury, why aren't the statutes unconstitutional as violative of the Appropriations Clause? Because Congress... If they're properly in the Treasury, strike that. If they're properly in the Treasury, why aren't the statutes in excessive congressional power and in violation of the Appropriations Clause? We believe them to be, the statutes to be an appropriation as to what use... No, but that's, that's contrary to my assumption. I said if we assume they are not appropriations, Justice Scalia's question, then do you lose? And, and you're telling me why you don't, but I think what you're, as I understand it, what you're telling me is that, uh, that they could not be regarded as appropriation, they, I'm sorry, that they could, that the funds could not be regarded as properly in the Treasury because, uh, their transfer to the Treasury uh, was mistaken. Justice Souter, if the import of Your Honor's question is if these two statutes were unconstitutional, would, would be, would I be making a different argument? We would not be making a, di- we would be making an argument that would lead to the same result, and the argument we would be urging, in addition to the one we urge with these statutes, is that the plaintiff is subject to the courts in personam jurisdiction. Yes, you, you, you contend that, uh, that if you get a judgment uh, uh, on appeal uh, uh, permitting the entry by the district court of, a, of, a, of an order for return of the property, that this would constitute within the meaning of this statute the compromise of a valid lien or mortgage against property that has been forfeited? I do, Your Honor. That's a strange way to refer. I don't don't believe so. The the, uh, very rulings or interpretations of that statute, which we cite in our brief by the government, show that one of those purposes is to pay valid mortgages against the property. This is not a mortgage against the property. You're you're saying you, you want a judgment for return. You want a judgment for money out of the Treasury. We want our mortgage on property recognized 
And the fact that that money has been turned over to the Treasury, we don't think in any way changes the result. If I may, Mr. Chief Justice, reserve the remaining time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Bailey. Mr. Long, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The question in this case is whether the Court of Appeals has jurisdiction over an appeal when the District Court has entered a final judgment of forfeiture in an in-rem proceeding. The final judgment has not been stayed, and the race has been released from the District Court's control and deposited in the United States Treasury. We believe that... I asked you right at that point, what was the... Was there jurisdiction at the time the notice of appeal was taken, which, as I understand it, was prior to the transfer of the race? Yes, we would say yes. At that point, the race... Jurisdiction was in the Court of Appeals then. And supposing the transfer had been made after the opinion was announced but before the mandate went down? I'm sorry, if the... Suppose the transfer were not made when it was, in this case, but after the case had been argued and the Court had deliberated on the case and announced from the bench they were going to rule in favor of the other side, but the mandate had not gone down, and then you transferred. I think the... It has to do... I think the mandate would be the Court's opinion in that case. No, mandate is not the Court's opinion. Well, the mandate would be the Court's decision. I think if the race left the Court's jurisdiction before the Court decided, that would deprive the Court of jurisdiction to control the disposition of the race. You catch me. I'm not exactly sure what the effect of a mandate is. I was always under the impression that the jurisdictional act for vesting jurisdiction in the Court of Appeals was filing the notice of appeal. I thought as long as there was a controversy between the parties, the Court of Appeals would retain jurisdiction. Well, that is generally true, but... What is your strongest case to the contrary of that proposition? I think the Brig Ann, the Rio Grande, and a number of cases cited in footnote three of our brief are all strong cases for the proposition that in an in rem proceeding, which is a different animal, different from the normal in personam proceeding, the Court's jurisdiction, the Court's... The appellate court's jurisdiction was defeated by a transfer after the appellate court had acquired jurisdiction. Well, that was what was at issue in the Rio Grande case. The Court recognized an exception. We view it as a rather narrow exception where the race is improperly or fraudulently removed from the Court's control. Why does that make a difference? Well, I think the Court was unwilling to allow an injustice to be done in that case, so it was willing to modify the rule to that extent. Why is that any greater injustice than this, if they're right on the merits? Well, we feel that there was no injustice in this case, and I'd like to address that. But if they were right on the merits, there was an injustice. No, because we feel that they had reasonable steps that they could have taken to preserve the Court's jurisdiction on appeal. They didn't take those steps, and since they didn't take simple steps that were available to them, it is not unjust to end the case at this stage. And I would like to address that as one of the... Could I ask you, did the district court do something affirmatively to release the funds other than just enter the judgment for the United States? Yes, it did, Your Honor. It entered an order requiring the marshal to dispose of the 
uh, race in accordance with law, and that's precisely what the government did. It, it disposed of the race in accordance with law by depositing it in the Treasury. Mr. Long, if, if contrary to the facts in this case, the government had had custody of the funds during the, the proceedings in the trial court, uh, say by agreement of the party, something you put it in an interest-bearing account, um, and, and during the pendency of those proceedings, the government uh, uh, improperly uh, transferred the funds to the Treasury, uh, your position would be the same, wouldn't it? The government lawyer would be in hot water. We'll, we'll accept that. But your position would be the same uh, on the uh, on, on mooting, in effect, mooting the case by loss of the, the raise, wouldn't it? Uh, our position would be the same under the appropriations clause. Once yeah. money is in the Treasury, even if it gets in there by mistake. And that would be dispositive of the case for you. That would be dispositive of the case. Under the, uh, the Rio Grande, this old decision, there is an exception in, to the normal rules of in-rem jurisdiction for improper removals, but that can't trump the appropriations clause. Well, then, then whenever the appropriations clause is involved, the so-called injustice exception is, uh, is simply uh, unavailable. That's our position. The appropriations clause is a very clear, simple constitutional command. There must be an appropriation. Is there no cause of action? I mean, there are appropriations for the payments of judgments uh, rendered by the Court of Claims uh, under the Tucker Act, under under other legislation. I, well, but is there such a big hole in our in our in our judicial system that uh, the government skips off with this money and there's there's no cause of action? Uh, well, again, we we don't regard it as a big hole because we think uh, there were fairly simple steps that the petitioner could have taken here, and the law was clear. In the Eleventh Circuit, they didn't take those steps, so we don't feel that there's a gap that needs. Oh, I think it's a gap if the government is sitting on money that, that it really shouldn't have. You, you would acknowledge that. Let's assume that the judgment below was wrong, should have been reversed on appeal. The government has money that it shouldn't have. Well, but it's often the case, Justice Scalia, in uh, in a case involving an injunction, for example, if the losing party fails to get a stay of the judgment, a final judgment can be executed, and there may be irreversible consequences. Well, let, 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 let's assume that I consider this an unjust enrichment All right. of the government. Uh, if we reversed the, uh, the district court order by munching wearing the case, uh, you set it aside, take you at your word and say there's no longer any jurisdiction in the courts. Since there isn't, the case is moot. Would there be a cause of action? Uh, return of the money under under there, any federal it is possible a separate cause of action not a there might be a cause of action against a government official we don't think there'd be any action against the united states the, the tucker act that you mentioned in the claims court you, this court has said there has to be a substantive a right to recover money yes, damages but, against the united yes, states but, uh, uh, i think you have to sustain uh, the, the fact that the court of appeals doesn't have any jurisdiction uh, before you even get to the appropriations clause, because if the Court of Appeals had retained jurisdiction uh, rightly in this case, and yet the money was gone, uh, and the Court of Appeals decided that uh, you lost the case, uh, and they entered judgment uh, against the United States. Well, let, let me well, I, you are, I suppose the United States is always getting judgments entered against it, uh, which they have to pay, that's, that's true, and, but the answer to that question depends on the basic distinction, again, between a true in-rem proceeding, which this is. Congress has said it is a true in-rem well, you agree? You agree, then, that you, that you must, the appropriations clause cannot, uh, cannot uh, finish this case 
without your winning the jurisdictional point? No, I don't. I think the appropriations well, clause is an If the Court of Appeals had jurisdiction and could decide against you, you're going to pay the judgment. Well, no matter where the money as, is. As a practical matter, yes, of course. Right. So this you, court, you have to convince us first that the Court of Appeals didn't have jurisdiction. Well, but the, uh, you may not want to put it in terms of jurisdiction, but the Court does not have power to enter an order requiring a payment from the Treasury that has not been authorized by Congress in an appropriations act. Contrary-wise, Congress passes a bill every year appropriating money to pay judgments rendered against the United States. Well, that's right. There is the judgment fund. But again, that has to, as, as the Court said in OPM against Richmond, there has to be a statute that gives you a substantive right to uh, damages, money recovery against the United States. But, again, let me make the basic point. It is a fundamental feature of a true in-rem action that the defendant is the race. That has been established since before the time of the Constitution. A judgment, an in-rem judgment, must be satisfied, if at all, out of the race. That's why, uh, once the race has left the court's control, uh, it, it really doesn't do to say, well, it can simply enter a judgment and you can get it from someplace. Why? Why, why is that the case? I mean, in, in an impersonum jurisdiction, the court is, is, acquires jurisdiction because it has the body of the defendant, right? And it can uh, exercise control over him. If he leaves the jurisdiction, we don't say, oh, God, he's gone now. The court can't do anything, so the case is over. That, why, why should it be any different? That is a distinction, Justice Scalia. I think the, the reason for it, it's, it's a long-established historical distinction. The reason is that an in-rem judgment has to be satisfied out of a particular piece of property. An in-personum judgment could be satisfied out of any property well, a person partic- located anywhere. Well. So the, the uh, risk of having an unenforceable judgment is much higher I mean, the, the classic case is the ship that sails the court yes, releases. you've got your parties reversed. The plaintiff has to satisfy the judgment out of the Reese. The government's the plaintiff here. It couldn't, of course, satisfy its judgment if the, if the Reese went elsewhere. But the defendant doesn't have to satisfy any judgment out of the Reese. He just to keep what, what, he, what he owns. Well, it is true that the government has taken the property and has put it in the Treasury, but it is... It is no longer in the court's control. What, what should the amount of the bond have been in this case? <laughs> we think the, the amount of the bond should have been sufficient to ensure that the government was compensated for the costs of an appeal. And, and would that have preserved jurisdiction in the court? Oh, yes, certainly. A, a even, if the, even if the bond was less than the amount of the forfeited proceeds, uh, suddenly you've uh, solved the, what you consider to be the jurisdictional defect? Well, I mean, I haven't solved it. That's what the federal rules of civil procedure rule that Rule 62 provides for. The the amount of the bond is so the amount the the amount of the bond need not be the amount of the lease, and yet the lease is 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 now constructively, I, I take it, before the court simply because a bond for costs has been posted. Well, that that is the requirement of the rule. The amount of the bond could be greater. We would think in some cases. Uh, in pr- probably in most cases, the court recognizing that the government held the property would would require a lesser bond. Well, how would that satisfy your concerns under the appropriation clause? Well, we would not be entitled to remove the property. The, the purpose of the bond results in a stay, and then the government is not allowed to execute the judgment, and the property stays within the control of the court. But you, you, you also agree if by some hook or crook uh, you, uh, you had uh, uh, your hands on the property and the court did not, and my hypo, when you were investing it by agreement, 
a bond could have been filed, and if you then improperly transfer to the Treasury, you're going to be making the same argument you're making today. Then there is an appropriations clause problem. If that case were to arise, the Attorney General would exercise his discretion to uh, return the property to the claimant or return it to the control of the court. But, but yes, there is an appropriations clause problem, and it arises whether or not the money gets into the Treasury uh, accidentally or, or improperly. How could the Attorney General exercise his discretion? You mean in violation of the Appropriations Clause? No, under uh, the uh, Asset Forfeiture Fund is a fund in the Treasury, and Congress has provided that money may be paid out for certain purposes. For you, of, but not for the other side, you say. Well, uh, you, you say that they can't use it, but the Attorney General can use it. Well, one of the purposes provided by Congress is that the Attorney General, in his discretion, may uh, use the money to compromise valid liens and mortgages. And if, there, if a mistake had been made, uh, we would certainly consider. Uh, well, you, you would acknowledge then that, that, that if, uh, if this case uh, came out against the government, that he'd be able to use that same fund to, to, to find the money to, to pay the, uh, play the claimants here. Isn't that right? Well, no, because there is no statute that authorizes an appropriation for that purpose. A statute, as, as you said yourself a moment ago, a statute giving the Attorney General discretion to do something is not the same as a, a, an appropriation uh, paying judgments. So you're saying that the, it is the discretionary character of the Attorney General's Act that defeats it? Yes, it is not. It, is, it does not meet the requirement of, a, of the Appropriations Clause because it does not clearly provide for the payment of a judgment in this case. Does the Appropriations Clause apply simply to public monies? Well, why, why are these public monies if the, if the title to them is contested? Because Congress has provided that this is a fund in the Treasury and has provided that uh, payments from the fund have to be made pursuant to an appropriation by Congress. But you are identifying the funds in an almost quasi-physical sense. Uh, you are saying once something is in the Treasury, it is entirely beside the point of the Appropriations Clause, whether it was proper to transfer it there or not. And the point of, I think the point of Justice Kennedy's question is, uh, isn't there some concept of what ought or ought not to be in the Treasury that should be applied before the Appropriations Clause argument would be appropriate? Well, our, our position is that if money is in the Treasury, then it can only be gotten out with an appropriation, and I think that... So that if government officials steal money, uh, uh, if government officials uh, in, uh, overcharge taxpayers and so on, uh, knowingly and fraudulently, uh, and the money gets in the Treasury, that's it, subject to the Appropriations Clause. It, the money can be paid out only pursuant to an appropriation. That's right, even in an extreme case. It's a clear and simple constitutional command. Let me back up, if I, if I could, and take just a minute to summarize our argument. I intended to do this at the uh, beginning, and I think I can, I can give our entire position in a nutshell. We have basically just uh, four points that we uh, think establish our case. First, the first point is that under a long-established rule applicable to true in-rem proceedings, the court's jurisdiction depends on its control of the race. Uh, the, an in-rem judgment must be satisfied, if at all, in the right there, you, on the, on the uh, Rio Grande case, that was jurisdiction to grant a judgment to the libelant, not to the libelee. Are there any cases where the jurisdiction, where you have the same uh, status of the party you have in this case, where it's the defendant who is claiming there is still 
power to correct an erroneous judgment? Well, I'm not aware of any um, admiralty case, but the Shaw case is an in rem proceeding. That was a uh, United States against Shaw. It's cited in our brief, 309 U.S. Uh, 495. That was an in rem proceeding, and there the United States was the uh, plaintiff, or it came in and made a claim, and the question was, well, did, did it therefore submit to the court's jurisdiction? Uh, and, and the answer was no. That, uh, for what purpose? Time. Jurisdiction for, for purposes of For purposes of a counterclaim. Uh, but not for the for purpose of deciding the merits of the dispute that the government had initiated. Well, it was, it was a counterclaim and set-off, but again, in order to get money out of the yeah. Treasury or to get a judgment against the United States, there would have to be an, a right of action in personam that we move out of the specialized world of the in-rem proceeding. And that's, that's really a different claim. Uh, a claim against the United States for money is not the same as a claim for the return of this property. I understand, but what I'm suggesting is you don't have a single United States Supreme Court case that supports the first proposition you're advancing here. There's well, no I, case that's on all fours with the position here. We do not have a case that's on all fours, but respectfully, I think the Brigan and uh, the Rio Grande are, are quite strong support for us. And uh, The Rio Grande would support you if they had taken the money away from the, from the district court before you got your judgment. And you'd be well, I, right. I, I can't imagine that if the other side had happened to get control of the ship and go off with it, that the result would have been any different. What the court was concerned about in that case was that there was a clear violation of statute. The bond, appeal bond, was posted in that case, and the court made a great deal of that and said it was clearly contrary to law for the property to be carried off. It, it didn't matter which party carried it off uh, in that case. So our our first point, again, is that an in-rem proceeding, uh, the judgment must be satisfied out of the race. If the court can't control the race, uh, it cannot enforce a judgment in-rem. Our second point is that the the United States did not consent to the entry of a judgment in personam when its agents filed an in-rem forfeiture proceeding. Congress has not authorized uh, the entry of a judgment in personam in petitioner's favor, and there is no in-rem uh, exception to uh, sovereign immunity. Third, petitioner's appeal is barred by the Appropriations Clause. Proceeds of the sale of the race have been deposited in the Treasury, and Congress has not appropriated funds to pay a judgment for petitioner. And finally, there is nothing unfair or unjust about requiring petitioner to take reasonable steps to preserve the court's jurisdiction on appeal. Appellants are often required to take such steps. Uh, Losing claimants can obtain an automatic stay by posting a bond, which protects the government against the costs of an appeal, including the costs of storing the property. And if a losing claimant cannot afford to post a bond, the court has discretion to stay the judgment without requiring a bond. Mr. Long, uh, are you simply saying that the the Court of Appeals was without jurisdiction, period? Are you saying that that this case is actually moved? Well, the case is over. It's, we think it's not – there's been a final judgment. It's been executed. There's nothing left for the well, court if, to do. S- supposing in this case that the bank had simply failed to file a timely notice of appeal to the Court of Appeals. Now, the Court of Appeals would have been without jurisdiction. The case would have been over. Yet no one would have suggested the case was moved. That's – and we think this case is exactly parallel. In, in Munsingware, for example, if, if I recall it correctly, the – the court refused to enter a Munsingware order for the government because it said we had failed to take simple steps we could have taken to preserve our rights. 
That's precisely the situation we have here, and so. Uh, so you say you, you do not say the case is moved. No, the, the case is simply over. There's been a final judgment. We've executed it. There is nothing left that a, a court of appeals can do. But the, the original judgment is, is not moot. Uh, and, of course, this, this court has jurisdiction to decide the jurisdictional question. That's, that's properly before the court. Petitioner really doesn't contend that it comes within a recognized exception to the jurisdictional rule but instead uh, argues that this court should basically jettison the rule that uh, uh, in-rem jurisdiction requires uh, the court to control the race. We urge the court to reject that suggestion, which is a radical one. Uh, The rule that the court must control the race in an in-rem proceeding serves the important purpose of preventing federal courts from issuing unenforceable uh, judgments. The rule is regularly applied uh, by the courts of appeals, cases cited in our brief, including the cases with the uh, circuits with the greatest familiarity with admiralty, uh, such as the Fifth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, and the Eleventh Circuit. Moreover, and this is a a central uh, point of our position, Congress has legislated in this area on the assumption that the traditional rules of in-rem jurisdiction apply in this area unless modified by statute. Congress has provided in 28 U.S.C. 2461B uh, that uh, forfeiture proceedings shall conform as near as may be to in-rem proceedings in admiralty unless otherwise provided by act of Congress. Thus, the courts are not at liberty to develop one set of jurisdictional rules for forfeiture proceedings and a different set of rules for admiralty cases. And in addition, Congress clearly understands the rules of in-rem jurisdiction and has shown that it modifies them when it chooses to do so. Uh, For example, it modified uh, the traditional rule in a custom statute, 19 U.S.C. 1605, that's discussed in our brief. The purpose of that modification was to alter the traditional rule that Congress understood would otherwise apply that the race must remain in the judicial district while the in-rem... So you would uh, you, you come out the same way as if, the, if a ship uh, sitting in port were the subject of the, of the action and the government wins uh, and it just... and it's a hotly contested case and then the government just sails the ship away. The, uh, the uh, former owner of the ship can't do a thing about it. Well, if, whether it's the government or another party, if, if there is a final order that allows the party to do that, allows the government to do it in your hypothetical, there's any final judgment can be executed, and once this ship has sailed to South America or wherever, the, uh, the long-standing rule in admiralty cases is that the court cannot do anything because it can't control the disposition of a ship in South America. Uh, now, if it were done improperly, or fraudulently, the, the court could continue to exercise jurisdiction under the Rio Grande as long as the, because the appropriations clause uh, problem would well, arise. How, how, why do you think it uh, can do that if the ship's gone? Well, the, the court made an exception to its rule. That there is a risk of unenforceable judgment, certainly. The court, it doesn't discuss this in the Rio Grande. It's an old decision. But the court well, so what, uh, let's, just, let's assume the ship has gone to South America. <laughs> But the court, uh, the, the court of appeals says, "Well, this the removal was absolutely fraudulent." Now, what's it going to do? Well, under the Rio Grande, the court, the appeals court, would decide the appeal and would it might issue a judgment. Uh, the judgment whom? might be un- against whom? It could be against the ship. 
Could be, or it could be, could be. Uh, could it be against the, the person who illegally removed it? Well, I, I was assuming that the owner of the ship took it away. Yes, it could be. It could require the return. It would the be the owner of the ship only because the uh, the uh, district court ruled that uh, it was forfeitable. Right. Well, again, there's a question. An interim judgment would have to be a judgment against the ship. It, the court might also enter, I suppose, an in personam judgment against the plaintiff on the theory that the, the plaintiff, now not the government, so not subject to sovereign immunity, had consented to the uh, had consented to the jurisdiction of the court. Like the United theory. States in this case. Well, the United States uh, is the plaintiff in this case, but again, the United States is subject to sovereign immunity and can only be sued. Well, what, what, what would you say if it were, if it were, if the Court of Appeals has said we have a judgment, we have jurisdiction here because we think the, the government illegally removed the funds? Let's, let's assume there had been a stay, which the right. gov- government did not uh, observe, but the money's in the Treasury. So what, uh, what does the Court of Appeals do? Well, it, in the exact hypothetical you give, the Court of Appeals cannot issue a judgment that requires payment out of the Treasury without... I agree with that, but what, would it, what does it do for you against the... Can the, United, can, can, the gov- can the Court of Appeals then issue a judgment against the United States, which would be satisfied in the normal course? No, because there is no statute that... Well, so there is no exception... Uh, or illegal government action in removing the race? Well, if it's a race that's not in the Treasury, yes, there, there would be, again, because then the appropriations clause wouldn't apply. So even putting up a stay and a supersedious bond would not have uh, guaranteed the bank a right to have its appeal heard here if, if the government chose to disregard the stay? Well, the, the, in that case, the government would have been acting illegally. And, well, so, uh, but I thought you told Justice White it didn't make any difference that the Court of Appeals still had no jurisdiction. Well, as we read the Appropriations Clause, it, it, there is no exception for money that gets oh, yeah. well, but, so, but your, your first point is that the, the uh, Court of Appeals had no jurisdiction. If, if the Court of Appeals could enter judgment against the government uh, on, on, the, on the merits, uh, very likely that a judgment like that could have been satisfied out of the judgments fund, might it not, without having to violate the appropriations. Well, again, this court has said in in uh, cases such as OPM against Richmond that the judgment fund is not an all-purpose fund that allows a court to enter judgment against the United States. There has to be another statute that gives a substantive right to recovery. Now, if if there was something illegal or fraudulent, I, that is not the case we have here. I think it's quite likely there would be some sort of way to sue an official of the government. There, are, there may be uh, ways that that could be done, and, and certainly the, the uh, attorney general has discretion to correct an error. That's not the case here, and let me close, if I could, by emphasizing we have uh, uh, tried to convince you that there would be great difficulty in uh, making this case come out for petitioner, that it would require... Uh, changing subtle uh, principles of in-rem jurisdiction. There's no, wait, there's do no, you have... There's no, you admit it, there's no case like this has ever come up before in this court. We don't have well, to overrule I, I, a single res- case to disagree with. With respect, Justice Stevens, I, I don't think I admitted that. I think the Brigand... What the case Rio is Grande, like this one that you can say? I think the Rio Grande is quite... That's small. the closest, and that's where they could not have recovered. Not, it's just it's the ab- exact opposite. Well, again, I think it wouldn't have made any difference if the other party had taken the... Uh, property away. But 
there's a sovereign immunity problem. There's an appropriations clause problem. Uh, if there were a grave injustice in this case, perhaps the court uh, should uh, strain to, ch- to change the rule. But Congress uh, has demonstrated that it uh, uh, knows about these rules and will change them if it wants to. In fact, Congress is considering legislation right now that's uh, supported by the administration that would change this rule. We think that the decision should be left to Congress. This is a after all, a, a rule that would have the effect of expanding the limited jurisdiction of federal courts. And finally, uh, what happened here was not uh, particularly unfair to the bank. They could have obtained an automatic stay by posting a bond. They didn't do that. The, they have uh, not offered any excuse for doing that. Um, they are uh, wrong in contending that the bond serves no purpose. Uh, it, it serves to compensate the government for the costs of the appeal and the costs of maintaining property. A lot of these cases involve boats and airplanes. The costs are quite significant, and it also deters frivolous appeals. There is actually a, a Congress expressly requires a bond, by the way, when an administrative forfeiture proceeding is converted into a judicial forfeiture proceeding. So Congress doesn't think that a bond is useless when the government has the property. Uh, and uh, there's no merit to petitioner's contention that it didn't have enough time to decide whether to appeal. Uh, it had as much time as uh, any criminal defendant has. And in injunction cases, there's no automatic stay at all. So uh, some parties are in a worse position than this and have to act immediately to obtain a stay. The government finds itself in that position in, in FOIA cases, for example. And there's no basis for the... Uh, Uh, speculation that there will be an avalanche of emergency stay applications if the ordinary uh, established rules in in-rem proceedings are allowed to continue in effect. These are the rules that apply in the uh, 5th, 7th, 9th, and 11th circuits, the circuits that have the uh, most experience with admiralty proceedings, and there's been no uh, avalanche of uh, emergency stays or no problem with courts not ruling on the stays in a uh, timely fashion. As this court said in Hallstrom against Tillamook County, the equities do not weigh in favor of petitioners whose procedural default is caused by their failure to take the minimal steps necessary to preserve their claims. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Long. Mr. Bailey, you have three minutes remaining. I would like to conclude with um, a very brief statement. We believe that appellate review, though not a constitutional right, is certainly a very basic fundamental and important right to federal litigants. We believe it is a right that is worth preserving. We respectfully ask this honorable court to preserve it here. The 11th Circuit's decision should be reversed and the case sent back to the 11th Circuit to reinstate the appeal and decide my client's case on the merits. What's supposed to happen then? We would ask the 11th Circuit to order the government out of the forfeited funds to pay us those funds to which we're entitled on our mortgage, Your Honor. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't care whether you were asking for the return of the specific funds or not, I suppose. Any government money is fine with us. <laughs> and you don't think you need the consent of the government to have a, to have a judgment like that entered? No, we do not, Justice Well. I thank the Court very much for its consideration. Thank you, Mr. Bailey. The case is submitted.